invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. John 8, beginning in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, Therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. Stay that you have made. Lord, we thank you for uh, your faithfulness, your, your grace in providing us with a place to meet, uh, to worship you. Lord, we thank you that uh, acceptable worship is not dependent upon the place in which it is offered, but rather it is uh, that which is offered in spirit and in truth and offered through your Son. And Lord, it is through the name of Christ that we come to you now, and we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word. Uh, we pray that you would cause your word to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, we pray that you would work and move past distractions, help us to focus our hearts and our minds on you, uh, that we would receive your truth for what it truly is, the word of God, not the word of man. Lord, I pray that all that is spoken here now would be your word and your word only, and that you would apply your truth to the hearts of your people. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick back up with our series in John, and we are continuing now after what was a bit of a unique sermon, dealing with the textual variants last week, uh, back up here now with the text in John. Now, as many commentators have observed, the narrative, the story of John 8 verse 12 flows very nicely from John 7:52, as we are continuing with Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. So Jesus is in Jerusalem. He has been teaching openly in the temple to the people gathered there for the feast. And as we'll see here, he does something now very similar to what he did in chapter 7, verse 37. Uh, so let's read together from John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, this is an absolutely loaded statement from Christ that has several layers for us to unpack. So first, this is the second of the famous I am statements from Jesus in John's gospel. 
You may remember back in John 6, 35, Jesus had declared, I am the bread of life. And we noted then that it was a unique phrase. The way that he said this was not the ordinary way of saying it. But as R.C. Sproul uh, pointed out, it actually sounded like a redundancy. Like Jesus was even stuttering, as in the Greek he says, ego I me, uh, which is essentially saying, I am, I am the bread of life. And so the reason for this apparent redundancy, uh, both here and that the other in the other I am statements of Jesus, was likely meant to be an intentional reference back to the divine name given in Exodus chapter 3. You may remember that story where God says to Moses out of the burning bush, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so this same unique phrase in Greek, ego I me, uh, is used here in Exodus 3 in, the, in what is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Septuagint. And so many scholars have taken Christ's phrases, his I am statements, uh, to be intentional references back to the divine name. As commentator Leon Morris points out, I am is emphatic. It is the very style of deity which we have seen employed before in this gospel. Close quote. So this statement, along with the other I am statements from Jesus, is likely an intentional reference back to the divine name. Jesus basically taking that name, that I am, and applying it to himself. Consider what this tells us about the person of Christ. He is more than just a prophet. Jesus is more than just a teacher, more than a, an interesting historical figure, more than a religious leader or the founder of a movement. Jesus is God. He is the uncreated, eternal, second person of the Godhead, as we saw from John's prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I encountered a man in Altona recently who was part of a religious group in town, uh, which he said honors Jesus as the Son of God, but the man told me not as God himself. He said they believed that Jesus was a created being, right? Not eternal. So this text would provide a challenge for them. Notice, no merely created being could properly claim the divine name for themselves, right? What prophet could claim to be Yahweh? Now, we would rightly say that a mere creature making such a claim would be guilty of blasphemy. John 1 verse 3 says, All things were made through him, through the Son. And even as their own, this group's own translation, it's called the Lamsa translation, as they have it there, says, Everything came to be by his hand, and without him not even one thing came to be of what was created. It, notice it does not escape the force of this. To even follow their text, everything that came to be, everything that came into existence, that began to exist, was brought into existence through him, through Christ. It came to be by his hand. 
So if it was created, it was created through him. So then the question becomes, can we say that this logos, this word of God, is a created being? Right? If all things that began to exist were made through him, and apart from him was not anything made that was made, uh, then what does this tell us about him? That he was not made. Right? You cannot be part of making yourself. <laughs> it tells us that he is inter- eternal, that he has always existed. As he says, ego I me, I am that I am, essentially, the light of the world. So Jesus is God. He is God the Son, the second person of the Godhead, and so we are right to worship him. We are right to sing amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Not God the Father, not God the Holy Spirit, but God the Son. I am that I am. Now there's more to unpack in this statement about Jesus being the light of the world, but we'll stick a pin in this for a moment and come back to it when we reach verse 20. But for now, let's move on with verse 13. The Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. So the Pharisees bringing up the issue of witness-bearing here is likely an echo of Jesus' own words back in John 5, 31, where he said then, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. But as D.A. Carson points out, the Pharisees had misunderstood this earlier statement. Jesus was not saying that if he spoke without supporting witnesses, that he was necessarily a liar, rather that if he testified about himself apart from what the Father gives him to say, right, apart from the intention and purposes of the Father, outside of the framework he had just established, then of course such claims could not be upheld. But the Pharisees here, it seems, take Jesus' words and attempt to turn them against him claiming that Jesus had not given sufficient legal grounds to validate his claims. As uh, from Deuteronomy 19, we see that a single witness is not sufficient in in a civil matter, but everything needs to be established by two or three witnesses. So they are, they are saying you have not met the criteria of the law, right? You need to establish witnesses. You're bearing witness about yourself. But if you remember back to chapter five, Jesus did give witnesses. Anybody remember? What were his witnesses? He said, John the Baptist has testified about me. The works, the miracles that Jesus performed testify about him. The scriptures themselves bear witness about him. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. And finally, the Father has himself borne witness. So while Jesus disagrees with them about his need to supply witnesses, as we'll see in a moment, 
If you remember back, we see Jesus did supply sufficient witnesses. John the Baptist, as Jesus said, the greatest prophet who ever lived. Uh, the scriptures themselves and all of the miracles Jesus performed as well as God the Father himself. What greater witnesses could you ask for? Uh, however, we see in this rejection of Jesus by the Pharisees, in spite of all their evidence, all the evidence he gave, um, they still did not receive it. And so this is one important point to keep in mind as we engage unbelievers with the gospel. The issue is clearly not a lack of evidence. Romans 1 says that what can be known about God is plain because God has made it plain. God has revealed himself through the things that have been made, through creation. Creation, according to Romans 1, speaks clearly enough about God's eternal power and his divine nature that men are without excuse for their refusal to worship him. What God has revealed through creation about his eternal power and divine nature, this all gets through, but sinners in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 1 verse 18. The issue is not a lack of evidence. Remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man dies and is in a place of torment and he says, please send Lazarus to go and warn my brothers to warn them about this place that I am in. And in the parable, Father Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Right? Let them just read the scriptures. They have what they need. The rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham replied, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It is not a matter of a lack of evidence. Jesus says through this parable, perhaps with some prophetic irony, that even if a dead man were to come back to life and warn them, even then they would not believe. The issue is not that there isn't enough proof. The issue is not a lack of evidence. The problem as we see it in scripture is not primarily intellectual, but it is moral. The issue is not in the head, but in the heart. Jesus had given sufficient testimony, but the Pharisees did not receive it. We see instead they made excuses. They tried to find technicalities, uh, asking for the criterion of the law to be fulfilled. What excuses have you been making? Perhaps you are here like the Pharisees, You've seen and heard more than enough about Christ. You know in your heart of hearts what is true, but you keep making excuses. You suppress that knowledge that you have. Perhaps you bring up objections and technicalities, anything you can to let yourself off the hook from doing what you know you must do. My friends, stop with the excuses. 
they will not fly when you stand before God. God is not mocked. But do what you know you need to do. Let's continue on. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. So Jesus argues here that their reasoning is not valid. Uh, he is one whose testimony is true, even if he bears witness about himself. Now, why? Well, he says, it is because he knows where he came from and he knows where he is going, neither of which the Pharisees knew. So what does he mean by this? Where he came from, where he's going. Well, John has already, already shown us as we looked at the prologue again, we know the answer to this. Where did Jesus come from? Not simply from Nazareth, not simply from Bethlehem, but from eternity past, he has been at the Father's right hand. He knows who he is. He knows where he came from. He is God the Son incarnate. He knows also where he is going. He is aware of why he was here and what awaits him. He knew that he came to die, to rise again, and to ascend to the Father's right hand victoriously. So here's the question. Does God need to establish his authority? What witnesses can God call forth? What witnesses could Jesus have called upon that the Pharisees would have accepted? Jesus' birth was foretold and was heralded by angels. His life and his ministry were prophesied by the scriptures. God sent a prophet as a forerunner to prepare the way for the Messiah. Jesus has caused the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear. He has turned water to wine and has fed multitudes with two fish and five loaves. God the Father has spoken from heaven, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And Christ has spoken with undeniable authority that no human has ever matched. Christ has been for eternity at the Father's right hand. And when he completes his mission of redeeming his people, of conquering the curse, of defeating sin, death, and Satan, he will ascend back to the Father's right hand, where he must reign until all his enemies have been made a footstool for his feet. Yes, even if he testifies about himself, his testimony is true. For he knows who he is. He knows where he comes from. And he knows where he is going. Verse 15, Jesus says, You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Now his opponents have been assessing him by merely human standards, as Jesus said earlier, judging by appearances, and now here, even worse, uh, judging in accordance with fallen reasoning, uh, according to the flesh, the sinful nature. 
Now we know the effects of sin are pervasive. And that is they extend to every part of our being, including our ability to judge. Right? Those who don't have the spirit of God, but are left in their flesh, will struggle to make right judgments. For sin has infected and affected their ability to judge. It's part of why we need to be corrected in all times by the word of God. And so it was here with the Pharisees. Jesus says that he does not judge anyone. Uh, however, given what he himself says in other places about himself being the judge, we should not assume that he meant this in an absolute sense, right? saying that he will never bring judgment. But rather, he is saying that he does not judge like they do. Instead, he says, if he does judge, it will be correct judgment. His judgment will be true, for he judges along with his Father who has sent him. Let us make no mistake. Christ will be our judge. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now this idea that Christ is nothing but love, tolerance, and acceptance is a myth. It is a myth that will be violently shattered when sinners stand in their sin before him on judgment day. Christ is a righteous judge. The wicked will not be able to stand before him. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. How do we know what righteousness is? What is good? What is evil? By what standard? How will Christ judge? Well, God has revealed it to us. It is his own holy law. His commandments, which we ignore at our peril. And what we will find if we do go to his law is that none of us is righteous. The law condemns us all as sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 No matter how much the world may have celebrated our sin, told us we are being courageous or brave for being our authentic selves, Christ will never condone sin. In fact, Christ died for sin. He died on the cross, taking the wrath of God against the sin of his people. And so the only ones who will be received and approved on judgment day are those who repented of their sin and threw themselves upon the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Those who turned to him in faith. Now those tax collectors and sinners that Jesus encountered and spent time with, they were received and welcomed by Christ as they were, but he did not leave them that way. Jesus did not enter Zacchaeus' home in order to tell him that his extortion and theft was really admirable. Rather, we see Zacchaeus was changed through his encounter with Christ. 
He confessed, he repented, and he sought to make restitution. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. So it is for all of us. Whatever our sins, there is forgiveness in Christ. But when we come to Christ, we must come broken for our sin, acknowledging our need for forgiveness. We are turning from it in order to follow him. And so we do not continue to live in that which took Christ to the cross. In this is salvation. True conversion to Christ. New birth. Being made a new creature. Forgiven and pure. And so this offer goes out to all. No matter what your sin. Forgiveness is yours. Through Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the good news. Let's continue on. Verse 17. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So although he had asserted that he does have the authority to bear witness about himself, Jesus observes that even the formal conditions of the law have been met. He bears witness, and the Father bears witness. There are your two witnesses. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Now again, given the previous exchanges, it's quite unlikely that they didn't know he was referring to God the Father. This is likely a mocking and derisive response, something along these lines. Your father testifies about you, does he? Well, where is he? We see you testifying about yourself, but where is this testimony? Of your father. Where is your father that we can hear his testimony? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Once again, we see Jesus draw this line in the sand. Those who oppose him, those who don't receive him, do not know God. They do not know his father either. Jesus is the fullest revelation of what the father is like. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. If you reject God's revelation of himself, if you turn away from what God has declared he is like, then it can be said quite truly of you, that you don't know God. And that is true regardless of what you may believe about yourself. The Pharisees were known as very religious people. They were viewed as experts in the law, authorities on religious matters. They viewed themselves as those who knew God. Yet Jesus tells them once again, You know neither me nor my Father. You don't know God. On what evidence? They reject Christ. For Christ is the fullest revelation of the Father. In fact, so fully and clearly does Christ 
uh, display, reflect his father's character and nature, that when Philip asks Jesus to show them the father, Jesus replies, Have I been with you for so long, and yet you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. In Christ, we have the fullest revelation of God that has ever been given. If you reject Jesus, do not deceive yourself into believing that you know God. And this, of course, means you must receive Jesus for who he truly is. You must receive him in all of his authority. You must receive all of his teachings, all of his claims, and must bow in humble submission to his lordship. In our day, there are many who would seek to drive a wedge between Jesus and the rest of Scripture. But this does not work if you would simply receive what Jesus himself taught about Scripture. Right? Jesus quotes Scripture and says it was the very speech of God. Right? When Scripture speaks, God speaks. And so you cannot reject the self-revelation of God in Christ. You cannot reject the self-revelation of God in his word and believe that you know God. If you reject him, if you reject his word, you don't know God. If you reject Christ, you remain under the wrath. If you reject Christ, you will die in your sins, and there will be no forgiveness. So come to God if you have not, and come the only way you can, through the mediating work of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And that brings us now full circle. I said we'd return to this idea of Jesus as the light of the world when we got to verse 20. So here we are. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now, the reason I wanted to wait to this verse is because once again, the setting here gives some significant background to the declaration. That is, where and when Jesus said this adds to the richness of the statement. So remember, we are still in Jerusalem. We are still in the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. And you may remember that this was a feast which commemorated the wilderness wanderings. Right? So that time that Israel dwelt in tents or booths or tabernacles after having been delivered from slavery in Egypt. Now one of the rituals which we've discussed, uh, which was developed by the Jews and had become part of the Feast of Tabernacles, was the water pouring ritual. So every day of the feast, the high priest would take a pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam and would take it in joyful procession back to the temple. Uh, and then it would be poured out near or on the altar uh, with shouts and music and celebration. Uh, and you may remember this was to commemorate the provision of water from the rock uh, in the wilderness where God gave his people water in the desert. And as we discussed in that uh, previous sermon, it was also thought to foreshadow the future outpouring of the Holy Spirit that God had prophesied. And so it was then against that backdrop of this water pouring ritual that Jesus cried out, If anyone is thirsty, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And what we have here in verse 12 of chapter 8 is actually very similar, for there was another ritual commemorating another part of the wilderness wanderings, which the Jews had incorporated into their Feast of Tabernacles. And this ritual was called by the Jews the illumination of the temple. And so four huge lamps were lit in the treasury, also known as the Court of Women. And this was then the signal for more lights to be lit and brought to the temple, filling Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside with light. Remember, this is before electricity. Uh, Jerusalem would not be a bright city at night, uh, being lit only by the, the lamps, the torches, lanterns that you would have. Um, and so as they would light many, many lamps and these massive torches, uh, the temple became this glowing beacon, uh, illuminating the rest of the city and the countryside. And so as these lamps were lit and would be left burning all night, the Levitical orchestras would cut loose and there would be celebration and dancing on into the night. And so if you remember back to our Exodus series, or are familiar with the history of Israel, you might be able to guess what this nighttime illumination of the temple with fire would be commemorating. Uh, in their 40 years of wilderness wandering, God himself led them through the desert in a pillar of cloud by day and a blazing pillar of fire by night. Right, this pillar of fire was the very presence of God with his people. When that pillar moved, they moved. They moved their camp. When the pillar came to rest, they stopped and they stayed. It was the means by which God guided his people. It was the glory of the very presence of God represented by this light in the night that led the people to the promised land and even protected them from their enemies. Exodus 14, 20. We see through the Old Testament that the Israelites were trained to sing, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 27, 1. The word of God, the law of God, is a light to guide the path of those who cherish instruction. Psalm 119, 105, and Proverbs 6, 23. And so this then, this illumination of the temple is the backdrop against which Christ declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I see the richness added by understanding this ritual. Now the Old Testament is loaded with imagery relating to light. We see many places that speak of light, Isaiah 60 is one, speaks of the promises that God would bring to pass. It says this, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Isaiah 9, another prophecy of the coming Messiah, says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Isaiah 9.6 gives the reason. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's been suggested as well that Isaiah 49 was read as part of the celebration of light. Isaiah 49, 5-7 says, Now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, so this is speaking, the, this is God the Father speaking to his Messiah. He says, it is too light a thing that you, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. But catch this. I will make you as a light to the nations, that my salvation should reach to the end of the earth. Right, what does Jesus say? I am the light of the world. If Jesus had this text in mind, then this claim to be the light of the world is a forthright claim to be the Messiah. And whether or not this is precisely what he had in mind, it is nonetheless absolutely true that this text and these others we've looked at were speaking of Christ. Jesus is the servant of the Lord, sent to bring the people of God into one body. And as this text prophesied, it would not only be the peoples of Judah and Israel, but instead Christ would be a light to the nations. He is the light of the world. All the ends of the earth are his heritage. The nations are his inheritance. Psalm 2 verse 8. Psalm 22 says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Psalm 22, 27, and 28. Christ is the light of the world. He is the savior of the world. He came to redeem his fallen creation, to break the curse of sin by becoming a curse for us. He came to recover dominion from the kingdom of darkness, to defeat sin, death, and Satan, ransom, ransoming for God a people, a people purchased by his own blood, a multitude greater than the sand of the sea or the stars in the sky, a people not just from Israel and Judah, but from every tribe, tongue, and nation. His light dispels the darkness. Wherever light shines, darkness is forced to flee. So it is with the brightness of his kingdom. Christians, the light of the world has delivered us 
from the domain of darkness. Colossians 1.13 Where we once were lost in the darkness of sin, our eyes blinded to the glory of God, our hearts loving sin and hating the light that may expose our sin, God intervened. God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. Christ, the light of the world, has saved us from darkness. He is our light and our salvation. Through his atoning death on the cross, he purchased us for his own possession. He has set us free from the power and penalty of sin. Those who follow him will not walk in darkness. Remember, Jesus says this against the backdrop of this illumination of the temple, commemorating the pillar of fire in the wilderness. And so just like that pillar of fire, Christ, our light, leads us to the promised land. Those who do not follow his light, those who remain in darkness, who do not come to Christ in repentance and faith, in the end will be cast out into outer darkness, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But all those who follow Christ will never walk in darkness, neither in this life or the life to come. But Christ, like that pillar of fire, will guide them. He will show them the way. His word will be a lamp to their feet and a light to their path. And they will receive a warm welcome into his kingdom of light. He will lead us into the eternal promised land. Though we now dwell in this wilderness, though there is darkness around us, we have the light of the world to guide us. Those who follow him will not walk in darkness. And you will find that Christ's ways are light and life. We do, of course, have eternal life, resurrection life, awaiting us free from pain, death, sin, sorrow, misery, and suffering. But we also see that following Christ will be light and life for us here and now. How different the home will be that embraces the gospel. A home that was once marked by bitterness and retribution will become a place of grace and forgiveness. A home once marked by selfishness and pride will become a place marked by humility and self-sacrifice. Anger and strife replaced by joy and peace. And so, as Christ is the light of the world, it is our calling to follow Christ, to follow his light, to walk in his ways, to be a follower, his disciple. This is to seek to become like him, to obey his teachings, to love our enemies and lay down our lives for one another, to pick up our cross daily, to die to sin, die to self, and to follow him. And as the hearts of a family are transformed, their home is transformed. And they become a beacon of light in a dark world. The church then, as a household of households, becomes a bright, shining beacon. As transformed people come together, we shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Philippians 2, 
15 and 16. We are called to shine our light. Let us not hide our light under a bowl. Let us reflect the glory of our king, shine his light into the world, and watch as the darkness flees. Let us speak forth the darkness-dispelling gospel of Christ and labor to rescue souls from the kingdom of darkness. Let us be true followers of Christ, not walking in darkness, but living in the light of life, shining that light into the world. Amen.